This is Hear It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. Representative Kathy Hawken has had her share of frustrations during the current legislative session. The Fargo Republican has co-sponsored several pieces of legislation to support early childhood education, but the votes haven't gone her way. This is a critical week at the Capitol when bills from the House cross over to the Senate and vice versa. Hawken holds out hope that pieces of her child care issues will do better in the second half of the session. Well, earlier today, we caught up with her at the Capitol. Well, let's start with uh, some of these uh, child care or child welfare bills that have been stewing in the legislature. First of all, uh, House Bill 1422. Tell us about the bill and what's happened to it. The original bill had $15 million in it. It was called the uh, Child Care Stabilization Bill, and uh, I have used this term even though I don't like it. It is a Band-Aid to try and get us uh, through the crisis that is occurring in western North Dakota, uh, to some extent in the rest of the state, but truly in western North Dakota as far as being able to find quality child care. And it's part of a, of a whole kind of plan to uh, invest in the children who are in child care. That's how the money would have, would have gone with the majority of that $15 million going west, along with technical assistance, along with business planning uh, and support for these businesses to try and get them to the point where they can, in fact, cash flow. And you and your co-sponsors brought this bill uh, because there is a demonstrated need. Absolutely. And, and we're hearing, well, the 2020 group, which went all around the state and then came out with a report of what things were of the utmost importance as we move forward in North Dakota, had child care as their number one issue. Housing was second. So this bill attempted, at any rate, to provide a Band-Aid to, to provide some temporary coverage uh, for uh, an important program. Exactly. It's to, provide, you know, to, to, to provide some capacity to get some spots so that there were good places for children to go. Uh, quality, obviously, is a major point, and for those uh, centers on, on the western part of the state that were, are just in the in infancy pro- program, uh, they would have some time and some help to put those quality factors in. Uh, at the same time, uh, child care centers on the eastern part of the state have started that quality practice, and they would have uh, been able to receive grants, but the quality piece had to be in place. And what the uh, bill ran into opposition, uh, a lot of opposition from your own party, regarding uh, basically what was considered subsidies to support child care. Absolutely. It is interesting. We will subsidize when we choose to, and then when we don't want to, it's a subsidy and we can't possibly do it. Um, we've sub- subsidized a number of industries over the years while I've been here, and we continue to do it. Uh, the Renaissance Zone is a subsidy, and you can call them whatever you want. They can be a tax credit. They can be a direct payment, but they are a subsidy. This is no different. This is an industry that needs some propping up. You cannot charge what it's worth in child care. And at this point, uh, the bill status is... The bill status now is uh, it has $1.6 million for technical support and uh, some money for data collection. It has changed the number of children that can be in each of the age groups in a center. Uh, I find this piece very concerning. We are not experts. There are experts that have studied this. They know how many children there should be along with how many people caring for them. Uh, but the legislature on occasion thinks we know all, so they've changed those numbers with little thought to 
safety. Well, I noted uh, in the video I saw of that uh, house session that you said in my eight sessions I'd never gotten up twice, uh, but you emphatically said we aren't smart enough to regulate, uh, that uh, we need to depend on the experts to do that. I'm going to put in a bill and I'm going to change the level on the weight chart. <laughs> Very good. Okay. So this has now been handled by the House. It goes to the Senate next, right? We still have to vote on it in the House. It's been back to appropriations. We have a very convoluted set, uh, process out here. If the bill has money in it, once it passes, it goes to the Appropriations Committee. The Appropriations Committee has an opportunity to amend it, and then it comes back, uh, either with a do pass or a do not pass. And it is coming back to the House floor with a do pass as it left here. And so your strategy is do pass it out of the House, get it to the Senate, and... Uh... And then hope we can convince those senators that this really is an issue. We know it is. It's a matter of how do we do it. Well, uh, how would you characterize the culture between those two houses of the legislature? Well, I, it used to be the Senate was a little more caring than the House. Uh, the Senate is changing slightly, too. I'm not exactly sure this year. It will be interesting to see uh, how this second half or thir- second period of this hockey game plays out. <laughs> okay. I'm not, and I'm not sure. All right. Well, we'll look forward to what happens to it in the Senate, and then ultimately if it gets to a conference committee, whether or not there's some resolutions that you like about it. Right. I am, I am terribly concerned. We have not passed any uh, bills uh, that care for children in any manner, other than we do have a study that will look at all phases of early childhood, both child care, uh, early, early childhood education, and Head Start. Uh, that study has passed the House. And that was House Bill 1356. Right, and it has passed the House. There is money in the education budget, the DPI budget, to perform that study. Uh, That has not passed yet, but the money is in there. It was amended in. Uh, And so that would be something, I guess. Um, What's the controversy about early childhood education in the state? They should be home with their mothers. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is 1950. You know, wouldn't it be great if that was the way the world worked? It doesn't. And so it's time that we look at what's the best possible situation. The other thing that I think is extremely important for people to realize is that we have learned so much more about brain development than we knew when I was young. Uh, unfortunately, I had a mother that read to me, and, and that's, you know that, those are the kind of things that are, were very positive. Early brain development from zero to four is really, really important. So the need for that special teaching and, and, and spot where you are going to be stimulated is um, a key to, to your, the future of your life. Not all children have someone at home that will do that for them. And uh, children have varying abilities at, a, at that age. That's a pretty critical age. They... It's a very critical age, and so I, you know, I, we keep trying to explain that, and it does seem to take a number of years out here uh, to do that education piece, but we keep trying. Well, let's move to Senate Bill 2372. What do you know about that? Uh, help me with that. I'm not a, a good relating, numbers person. It's ch- children's health insurance. It would basically supplement oh, okay, the, chip the chip program. The chip thing. Okay. We had an opportunity last session to save uh, a considerable amount of money, several million, and uh, in our infinite wisdom chose not to do it. I have not, uh, as because we're, we we'd really do uh, concentrate on the bills that are in our half. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I now, after Wednesday, then you, then you change your brain over a little bit and you start <laughs> looking at those bills that have twos on them. I am a I am a proponent of providing health insurance for young 
for young children. Um, I we've had we've had the discussion in in uh, this chamber about uh, being pro-life or pro-choice, and I think there are too many of us that are simply pro-birth. Uh, we don't do much for those children before they get here. We don't care if they get here healthy. We do care if they get here, and then we forget them. And the health insurance is a is a key piece. Well, I'm going to keep it in your house right now. Let's talk about House Bill 1317. That's that loan pay-down program for early childhood education providers. Yeah, that's gone. Okay, so that's away now. That 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 that's mm-hmm. yeah, that was defeated. Back. That was defeated. It does not go any further. House Bill number 1334, uh, Arts into the STEM pilot grant program, ran into a buzzsaw. It did, although there is a piece of that that's, well, the arts piece, uh, but we've, we've got a STEM grant uh, bill that's still alive. So there's still a tiny, tiny hope that we could maybe get a little bit of that on that bill that's still running around. And refresh our listeners as to why the arts piece was taken out. Well, we don't do art. <laughs> <laughs> we do STEM. <laughs> we there there is more of a possibility that we could do STEM, although that I mean, it, it's it's a very it's a very interesting process. Um, I I really believe that right now we have opportunities coming out of our earlobes. We have some financial to be due to the oil and the commodity prices that should allow us to be truly visionary that we could be doing some things that uh, will improve North Dakota and the quality of life here and ensure that uh, we have uh, good income for years into the future. Instead, we are really working on the crab theory and pulling things down. We have just killed one initiative after another. Uh, The only thing I'm seeing is that we do have some, some tax uh, bills and, and certainly getting property tax back to our citizens is very important. We all know that. Uh, but we're, And we're going to do some stuff with the inf- infrastructure in the western part of the state. Again, something that's very, very important. But as far as looking at uh, things outside of the box, there have been some, like the Art STEM project, some things that would have been really fun to try. And uh, we don't seem quite ready to do that yet. Well, I did a little bit of research, Kathy, before we got to our discussion here, and I came across a video of you being interviewed by Dave Thompson near the end of the 2011 legislative session. Oh, dear. Which was supposed to be, according to you, your last session. And, it w- and had, it, and had uh, my dear sweet Senator Tom Fisher not passed away, it would have been. Yes. Uh, but you characterize that session as mean. Mm-hmm. You use the word mean. Um, and and I, I'm not quite sure we're not far enough along on how to characterize this session, uh, but there seems to be some anger, um, which isn't necessarily a very positive term, and I find that just sad because it should be, this session should be excitement. Uh, it should, there, like I said, there's so many opportunities, and, and I think we're just letting them slip through our fingers. Well, what's happening? Because the legislature is dominated by one party. It's not like the Democrats are creating schisms out there. Uh, so this is sort of internal, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, there are a number of people and, and with very good rationale in their minds that, that are just very, very fiscally conservative, and they don't think we should spend money on anything. That's uh, Fargo Representative Kathy Hawken. More with her in just a moment.
Support for this program is provided by the North Dakota Education Association, an organization of 8,000 school employees working to ensure great public schools for every child. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public features a special three-hour presentation of Makers, Women Who Make America, the story of the modern women's movement. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. We're going to talk some more with Kathy Hawken, a turn of events at the Capitol that surprised Hawken and other legislators, especially her colleagues from Fargo, had to do with Majority Leader Al Carlson's effort to push legislation that would eliminate state funds for river diversion and ring dikes. The Majority Leader did put some amendments on the water bill. That is actually the the Water Commission budget. And that is a somewhat separate group. Uh, And... um, The amendments that were put on that bill are uh, extremely restrictive for Fargo and in all essence would shut down any chance for a diversion. Um, You know, it would make it very difficult to lobby in Washington for money when your state is not supporting you. I am extremely disappointed in it, and I know that it says on the front page of the paper today that I voted for the amendments. I didn't vote for the amendments. I voted for the bill. And many, many times out here, and it's unless you've been here, it's sort of hard to understand, um, you have to keep a bill alive. In order to be able to make it better, it has, to, it has to be viable, which means it has to move forward and move to the Senate. So I voted for that bill strictly to keep it alive with the hopes that we can make it better in the Senate. Now, if it came back to the House after conference committee in that same shape, I would not vote for it. Well, did the Majority Leader, Al Carlson, explain to uh, you, your caucus, uh, uh, why he was doing this? Not to my knowledge. I'm not in the inner circle. But I did not hear any rationale. But you're a Fargo legislator. Right. Uh, Is the communication that strained? Um, I think the communication is different. Um, You know, there is a definite level of, of leadership, and even though I've been here... This is my 17th year, I guess. Um, I am a moderate Republican, and that does not always put me um, on the committee. Well, I noticed that uh, the Say Anything blog gave you and Governor Jack Dalrymple their rhino uh, uh, label. Yes, they did. That was we, we, you know, we're right up there at the beginning of the session. We actually find that quite good. It means you're trying to make a difference. Well, I, I'm still trying to piece together, though, the logic behind the uh, amendments to the Water Commission budget. Uh, what I have absolutely no idea. Other than that, we I know we would like to control the the. Leadership would like to control more of the Water Commission, uh, have more uh, say over over what happens, but that doesn't really explain these amendments. I can't tell you. I have I have told the majority leader that I felt this was a mistake, that this is his community, and that this was not the way to treat his community. And? That's, I didn't get a response. Okay. Uh, well, that leaves an awful lot up in the air and uh, creates a tremendous amount of controversy, I would think, for the majority leader and for the party right now. It's distressing to me. Um, like I said, we've got opportunities. I, I just wish that as we start the second half, we could come together on some of them and um, do some things that are really, really good for North Dakota. Now, we will. I don't mean to sound all gloom and doom. There will be a lot of good things that come out of this session. Um, 
We just have to wait and see which ones they are. But if flood mitigation is uh, uh, that's a pretty big one on my list. Uh, that is that's part of the reason that that's what such a that's part of the reason I'm back. Um, I can't let my friend Tom down after all of the years he worked on water. Uh, for me not to be a part of that and and try and get that to move forward would be just counterintuitive. Um, I know I know that I got Tom sitting on my shoulder and um, got to keep working on it. Well, considering your the somewhat strained relations between the leadership of the party and other members of the party, are there any discussions about you know doing an end around, kind of finding another way to caucus or to influence the leadership? I think you keep working on it. You keep bringing up good reasons why uh, doing it the right way is the better better path, and and we just have to keep. Uh, trying to make that happen. I'm hopeful that the Cass County legislators will coalesce and, and work together. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time, but it has happened several times in the last couple of sessions, so there is hope for that. Uh, and we'll have to try. And I noticed that I have an email right as I was sitting down to call you that says a discussion on, on the water issues for Cass County legislators. So well. that's a start. And so maybe that article this morning will uh, give everybody a good swift kick and we'll Get something, to, get something done. Well, if you were crystal balling here and, and uh, looking ahead to the end of the session, uh, uh, would you be predicting that there would be some flood mitigation uh, funding coming to I, Fargo? I think what we want is we need to have that money. We certainly need to be, uh, we need to report on it and what we're doing with it. I, I have no problem with that transparency whatsoever. But the people in in the county that have been working on this day after day for several years certainly have a better understanding than any of us do. They know, uh, they've looked at all the options, so they're going to try and do the very best they can for the most people they can. And so I would hope that that money will, will flow in the right direction without uh, all the strings. Okay. Well, we'll be watching that very carefully, and uh, obviously the other uh, issues as well, the child care issues. The uh, a big money question out there for most people you touched on earlier was the tax stuff. How do you see it shaken out? I think that there will be uh, additional tax savings on um, uh, with education funding. I think there will also be some bills that direct some property tax relief back through other political subs. One of the things that hap- is happening is that we, the state is picking up. Uh, we had a bill this morning, and we'll see what happens to it, that the state would take over the foster care. If the counties no longer have that, then that's a deduction in county mills, which is a deduction in property tax. Well, Kathy, you have a pretty extensive background in, in public education. You served on the school board. You're on the state board. Uh, uh, your educational background is in, is in education. Uh, but let's talk about higher ed for a second. There certainly are some uh, uh, blow-ups in that particular area. Uh, I noted the Senate today defeated the bill that Tony Grinberg had brought to allow the State Board of Higher Education to buy out uh, Hamshirvani's contract as chancellor. But it only lost by one vote. Yeah. So what is happening to higher education in that body? Uh, I think that the, you know, the bill will come over to the House. It will be interesting to see what happens over here. I think the funding piece of... The higher education budget is exciting. It's a new way of funding, and uh, there's been a lot of study put into it. 
it's it's trying something new. It's performance based. It isn't by peers. Uh, it should you know it, it doesn't pit one college against another. I, so I think the funding formula that the governor and several of the finance directors and before have worked on is a good one to try. I think it's exciting. So that piece I'm very positive about, as well as the biz- the buildings that have been uh, put in the governor's budget are are needed buildings and and things that would would add to our state. Uh, as far as the governance issue, um, again, I'm not on that committee. I'm not on the board of higher ed, and they they serve a very very important piece in our state. I would not want to see them go away. I think that there's been some missteps, and sometimes it's hard or embarrassing to say, "Whoops." We didn't do that exactly correctly. I don't think it's a very good fit, is I guess how I would put it. Um, and so I think that sometimes then it is better to cut your losses and move on. And yet uh, the state has had not great luck uh, with chancellors for its higher you know, education I, system. I don't think that the legislature and the board have communicated very well. I would say, and I was on the education section Last session, I would say that what we wanted as a chancellor on the legislative side, and we only have one side, is uh, someone who was a collaborative leader who could could bring together the quality we have in the presence that we currently have in the state of North Dakota. They are an outstanding group, and they have good brains, and they know their institutions. And so, to me, the chancellor's role is to encourage and and help them accomplish the goals on their individual campuses. If you look at what John Richmond has done at, at Wapaton or Steve Shirley at Valley City, I mean, we have wonderful, wonderful people. And I, and I could go right down the list and say the same thing about all of them, so I don't mean to leave anybody out. <laughs> uh, but they're really good. So we need an atmosphere uh, that is open and sharing and uh, growing uh, because that's where we want to go. Our educational institutions are definite economic uh, engines in this state. The amount of uh, revenue that we get from those schools is tremendous. We don't ever look at that side. I, that's something I keep bringing up out here now. I'm actually I'm doing the uh, tax commissioner's budget today. I'm carrying that on the floor, and I'm going to point out where the uh, wonderful savings are and what a good job he has done for the citizens in a number of areas, but that there is a benefit. There's a cost-benefit to this. So it isn't just that we're spending money, but there's also a return on that investment. And I think we have to look at that a little more than we do. I found out today, did not know this, if it's a budget bill that is revenue-reducing, appropriations doesn't look at it. And I thought, gee, that's funny, because if I have to deduct a check out of my checkbook, you know, and that's the same thing. We're deducting half a million dollars, half a billion dollars out of our revenue, we ought to we got to be talking about that, too. Okay. Well, we look forward to talking to you again because it's uh, interesting to hear your opinion. Representative Kathy Hawken. Thanks she's... so much for having me. I truly, uh, I truly enjoy sharing. Um, we need to have people engaged. Watch and see what we're doing. And it's okay to call and say, what are you doing? Okay. <laughs> well, we'll be doing that again. We'll be calling Representative Kathy Hawken from District 46 and saying, what are you doing? Anytime. Thanks, Doug. And coming up on Here It Now, more about the North Dakota legislature from the point of view of this, in this case, the North Dakota Women's Network. Executive Director Renee Stromy will join us to talk about an upcoming event at the Capitol. That's after the news. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. 
North Dakota Farmers Union and uh, the North Dakota Women's Network are joining forces to put together a special day event on March 11th, a one-day Women's Day at the state capitol in Bismarck. They're calling this Free Women Empowered Rise event. Uh, And uh, we're going to talk with the executive director of the North Dakota Women's Network, Renee Stromy, about what's going to happen. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First of all, uh, what is the North Dakota Women's Network? Where did that come from? Well, the North Dakota Women's Network is a statewide women's advocacy organization, and we've been around since about 2006. We've uh, emerged to address a broad array of women's issues on the advocacy level, uh, legislatively, but also to build up women's leadership and encourage more women to participate in the political process. What happens at uh, We Rise? Well, first I want to say that North Dakota... The North Dakota Women's Network and the Farmers Union have been great partners, but there's also a number of other groups that have been part of this, including Mm -hmm. the Council on Abused Women's Services and Planned Parenthood, National Association of Social Workers, and... um and at number one, did I lose some? Uh, so it, it's a, a great collaborative effort amongst groups. Oh, American Association of University, University Women was the other one. And so what we do is we on on Sunday, March 10th, we have an advocacy training where we teach people kind of the nuts and bolts of the legislative process about um, how bills originate and their process through the system and as well as where, what role they can play in that piece, particularly in committee hearings where they can give testimony and how they can reach out to their legislators to have their voice part of the process. And then the next day we spend it at the Capitol. Um, it's going to be a very excited day. We already have 115 registered. We expect about 150. And they'll start out with um, just a, a quick gathering of this is the agenda. Spend some time in committee hearings. The first lady has invited us to the the mansion to hear from her and, and get a tour there. We'll have lunch with legislators. We'll hear from women elected women, and then spend some time on the floor to hear what's going on there and wrap it up and just go over what we've learned and what we've we've got. Just. The main piece is to learn about the process, but also to identify that that women have a voice in it and that they can um, influence what is happening at the legislature. Now, this is the third time you've done this? This is our third time, yes. And and what kind of reception do you get from the legislatures, legislators? Well, it's been very good. I think that they are excited to think there there are more people interested in the process than maybe they anticipate um, when people give up a whole day and – drive to, we have buses coming from Minot and Fargo, and when they, they give up a whole day, come to learn and see what's happening, but also share what their opinion may be on on issues, um, it identifies it legisl- to legislators that there is an interest and they want to help encourage that involvement. How many people are you expecting to show up? About 150, I believe. Okay. And, uh, I, you know, I just spoke with uh, Representative Kathy Hawken. I don't know if you heard any of that. I heard some of it. Uh, well, mm-hmm. she was concerned about legislative help for daycare in North mm-hmm. Dakota. I know that's a central issue with your group. It is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, will you be lobbying on March 11th for that? We definitely hope to do that. Um, the bill that she's sponsoring, specifically 1422, but there there are others in ter- early childhood education and such, um, is a result of, of a bit of a crisis that's happening across the state, but a, a massive crisis that's happening in places like Minot and Williston, where a lack of um, daycare is very immediate, uh, where 
daycare centers are on the, the verge of closing because they can't keep up with the wages that are offered in other businesses. And um, there's a need to to help boost that, keep those open. And daycare is just a vital, vital need for working families. Well, getting back to this uh, We Rise Women Empowered Day at the mm-hmm. Capitol, Monday, March 11th. I know you've got that warm-up on Sunday for people who want to, can attend those, uh, mm-hmm. those meetings. Uh, the I guess the statistic that just jumps out at me from your website, ndwomen.org, is that uh, currently women represent only 17% of North Dakota state legislators. So you're going to stand out when you're there. We hope to stand out, absolutely. Um, we have been stagnant. If We actually had a little bit of a drop in the percentage of women who have served in, in the legislature. Uh, it was at 14.9% in 2010. We've gone up now... 2011. We've gone up to 17%, but that's been the per- same percentage for um, decades, really. And our uh, our organization specifically and um, others that are part of this have really been trying to encourage more women to run for office because that's really the, the key to it is that we need more women to step up, put their name on that ballot, and um, to, to consider themselves as the future leaders. What are the most important impediments to that? Uh, what, what gets in the way of women participating? Well, one of the greatest impediments is that women don't um, see themselves as entitled to the position, hmm. um, and they they wait to be asked to run. Um, and so it's sort of like a good old boy state yeah, point of view. Right. Instead of coming and seeing, well, I have just as much of a right to run for the office as anybody else, uh, they wait to be asked and considered. So we're doing the asking and we're giving some tools out to do that. Um, the, there certainly are obstacles in everybody's life, but we can always come up with obstacles, um, whatever they may be, just to make... But it's important that we, we look past those and think we can make it work, we can help move this forth and run for office. One of your uh, central positions has to do with a, uh, a subject that's very controversial mm-hmm. at the North Dakota legislature every time they get together, and that's a woman's right to choose and access to affordable birth control. Mm-hmm. So what kind of reception do you expect? Well, I think that, that a lot of the people coming for the day um, – though there's not a universal agreement ever on the issue of a woman's right to choose, that a lot are coming because they think the the legislature is really overreaching on the issue. There are way too many bills, and the personhood bills are specifically uh, really dr- troublesome because it reaches beyond an ability of just the access to affordable and um, birth control. It reaches beyond whether abortion is legal or illegal, but it inflicts the availability of birth control it reaches into retro fertilization and even end-of-life decisions. So there are very big bills that maybe bring in some, some who may not agree with us most of the time may think, well, this is too much. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that plans out. We, sometimes I think the problem is they don't, we don't have enough information about what all can happen. Well, one more issue, that, again, that uh, is, is prominent on your website is that women's earnings mm-hmm. are consistently lower than men's earnings in North Dakota. Uh, that's a perennial issue, too. That is a critical issue. And that one is, um, 
there's not really a lot filtering through the legislative process addressing that. Um, we've noted that the state treasurer, for example, who happens to be a woman, is one of the lowest paid um, statewide elected officials. So it's prominent. It, it, it's across the board we're seeing lower pay for women. Um, it's it's about valuing additionally what what the work is that women bring to the table. You know, child care providers are predominantly women and they're really low paid. And so we wouldn't it's an economic justice issue to address that. But there's not a lot in the legislature right now addressing it. And uh, the last one of the big four issues that uh, you're, you're mentioning, it, the uh, freedom from violence. Mm-hmm. And the number I see here is from 2006, but that's a, it's a big number. There were at least 5,285 victims of domestic violence and sexual assault in North Dakota. That's a staggering number. Yeah, and I believe that it's actually gone up with um, – the Council on Abused Women's Services, which their website is ndcaws.org, and they keep a, a running tally of the, the numbers, and they have gone up with the increase in population in the state. Uh, we, there are a few bills that are in the legislature right now to address the issue of violence in North Dakota. There's specifically one um, that just passed yesterday or maybe <laughs> – yeah, I think it was yesterday – to provide some financial support to the Victim Assistance Academy of North Dakota so that uh, law enforcement, prosecutors, victim assistance um, personnel can be trained on um, supporting victims so that they can uh, improve their their um, prosecution rates. Well, the event is We Rise, Women Empowered. It's Monday, March 11th at the Capitol. It's free, right? It is free. It's absolutely free. We have lunches provided, and um, in fact, the transportation, if somebody's in Fargo wants to grab the bus, that's free, as well as in Minot. Can they sign up online? They can. They can go to our website, which is ndwomen.org, or to the event website, which is standupnd.org. All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing this information with us. Renee Stromy, Executive Director of North Dakota Women's Network. Thank you very much. And we'll be back in a moment. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. Here at Now would like you to contact us if you have comments, questions, or guest ideas. Give us a call at 1-888-755-6377 or write us at hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. Well, this is Hear It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the background, the Chopsticks Variations. Uh, Margot Gurion at the keyboard. The Chopsticks Variations. This evening, Bismarck native Shannon Galpin will return to her hometown as one of National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year. Galpin was recognized by the publication for her humanitarian efforts in Afghanistan. In 2006, she started a nonprofit called Mountain to Mountain that aims to educate and empower women and girls to be change agents in regions of conflict. She believed in her mission so completely that she sold her house and her car to get started. And that's why she chose Afghanistan for her activism. We spoke to her last December. 
Um, I literally um, picked the worst place in the world to be a woman. It was really that simple. I wanted to fight where women didn't have a voice. But I was also curious about the, the connection between our country and Afghanistan, um, Americans and Afghans, and the incredible stereotypes and, and uh, misperceptions that we have between our two cultures because of the ongoing conflict there, because of our work there with the international forces, and so how we view Afghanistan, and also really trying to look at um, being a part of how Afghans view Americans, um, because I can operate there as, as an individual woman and just change perceptions one person at a time and, and represent um, you know, our common humanity versus looking at this geographic border and the stereotypes that reside on both sides. What did you, how did you find Kabul? I mean, what, what kind of an environment is it? When we see Kabul or other parts of Afghanistan on television, in, in news reports, it's generally after something is blown up. What, what did you find? Well, I think it's interesting because I think the story of Afghanistan has been so limited to such a narrow storyline of you know, war and terrorism and poverty and oppression. But for me, in my experience, that's not the story. That's just simply the backdrop in which life goes on. And there's amazing beauty in this country. Um, I've heard many people who've spent time there, like I have, um, talk about the almost a magical quality um, of the people, of the culture. It's, um, you know, Kabul's an urban center, and it has the same things you'd find in any urban center. You know, you have um, a huge spread of wealth um, from, you know, people who have nothing, no electricity, no running water, living in, you know, literally uh, shacks, to uh, warlords living in palaces, and then everything in between. But you leave Kabul, um, which is kind of, um, you know, in the foothills, essentially, of the mountains of the Hindu Kush, it is surrounded by beauty. It is one of the most beautiful countries I've ever had the pleasure to hmm. travel through. When you're walking about, uh, keeping in mind that you picked this place because it was particularly challenging for women, uh, were you wearing a burqa or uh, as a Western woman, did you have more freedom? Um, as a Western woman, I definitely have more freedom. I, I've kind of referred to it as a third gender. Um, you're, you are technically, as a foreign woman, looking very foreign, as I'm tall and blonde, and, and it's, a, it's an instant reaction. They know I'm foreign. Um, they treat me like an honorary male. So I have full access and, in most cases, respect from the men that I deal with. I eat and drink with the men. Um, but because I'm a woman, I have full access to the women that are often sequestered in another part of the home, particularly in rural communities. Um, so it's a very unique position. I'm very respectful of the culture. I, I certainly uh, dress appropriately. I wear a headscarf at all times. But um, I have not worn the burqa except when I'm in the South, uh, when I've traveled in Kandahar. And that is uh, not only culture, because you see very few women, if any, without a burqa. It's still very much um, very conservative and very much uh, still under the control of the Taliban. And so when I'm there, I do not want to be spotted as a foreigner. Um, and so I do travel in a burqa. Shannon, maybe we could step back for just a moment and get kind of a short course in the circumstances for women in Afghanistan. What's it like to be a wife? Well, it's actually a harder question than you'd think to answer succinctly because there's a very uh, large gap between urban and rural Afghanistan. And in rural Afghanistan, it's exactly what we think. It's the reason Afghanistan is ranked the worst place in the world to be a woman. Um, you are very much sequestered um, off in another area of the home with the other women. 
Um, you are married off quite young, often as young as 13, 14, um, to a man of your family's choosing or sold. Um, you know, if, because if there's extreme poverty, you're often sold to a much older husband. Um, you know, women that are raped are often accused of adultery and thrown in jail. Um, women are essentially modern-day slaves. It's uh, incredibly heartbreaking, and, and it's exactly what we think of. And yet, the fascinating um, change for me was seeing women in the urban centers where more women are educated and educated through university, particularly in Kabul. I mean, Kabul is definitely a, a unique island within Afghanistan, but also in Mazar-e-Sharif and Herat. Um, in the other urban centers, women are doctors. They are members of parliament. They are uh, politicians. They're activists. They're doctors. They're lawyers. Um, and so you do have women. I mean, it, it proves the point that of education being the key to everything else, because when you have education, you have value, and you have a voice, typically, and you use that voice. So you do see in the last 10 years a huge movement um, in these urban areas of women that are in very strong um, political and um, uh, activist roles. That's Shannon Gilpin. She is National Geographic's Humanitarian Adventurer of the Year. She's a 1992 graduate of Bismarck High School. She currently lives in Breckenridge, Colorado, hence the mountain to mountain, the mountains of Colorado to the mountains of Afghanistan. Galpin will speak this evening in the Sydney J. Lee Auditorium in Schaefer Hall on the campus of Bismarck State College. Her presentation begins at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. I'm Jack Spear, news anchor for NPR's All Things Considered. In my job, I get to hear the best that NPR reporters around the world have to offer. In an era of shrinking news budgets, that often includes national and international news that virtually no other news outlet is providing. It's that commitment to providing broad coverage of world events that you have come to depend on. This is NPR. And this is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. Well, once a week, NDSU history professor Tom Ezern comes by with a Plains Folk column. Today's is titled Gopher Tales and Football Stories. One of the great resources for grassroots folk life on the Northern Plains is a local history collection of the Institute for Regional Studies at North Dakota State University. I love it that the shelves are open to users in the reading room. So you can pull down a dozen different centennial histories of this or that county and immerse yourself. The effect can be transporting. You begin to realize how profoundly different was the mentalité of prairie life a century ago. About this time in 1914, for instance, citizens petitioned the Emmons County commissioners to place a bounty on gopher tails Two cents per tail in April, or one cent per tail May through June 15th. The commission agreed that gopher tails would be received by the county auditor, who would pay on lots of 50 only, after which he gave them to the building janitor to burn. Only kids would watch for the janitor to put the bags of tails into the incinerator, rake them out, and turn them in again, and again. Stores in the county's towns took gopher tails in trade for penny candy. Storekeepers took turns taking the tails over to the courthouse in Linton. County employees hated this whole business. A photo in the Emmons County Centennial History shows Judge Carley, 
Court Clerk Fogel, Treasurer Irwin, and Sheriff Kyes, all of them nearly hidden behind stacks of gopher tails, thousands of them. And that's just the beginning of the story because a lot more happened off camera, so to speak. I'm sitting in the reading room trying not to disturb others by laughing out loud, thinking about all those Emmons County kids snaring gophers with twine, drowning them out with tank wagons from the threshing outfit, madly competing for pocket money, and then stealing their own tails back, or better yet, someone else's, while the janitor isn't looking, or maybe when he is looking, why should he care anyway? And while we're laughing about old times, let's talk about the first football game ever played by the boys from Ashley in 1921. They borrowed uniforms from the state normal school, took the train over to play Mandan, despite the fact that only one of them had ever even seen a football game played. Local historian Adam Walker writes that after Mandan had scored a few touchdowns, one of the referees advised the Ashley boys they really ought to tackle somebody. Walker recalls specifically, because it was a rare and notable event, that Art Meidinger was the first to tackle one of the Mandan players, and he was quite pleased with himself. Evidently, the Ashley boys had a good time and were not discouraged by the final score of the first contest. Mandan, 146, Ashley, 0. In fact, they went on to win their next game against Eureka Lutheran College, playing this game in blue overalls with no pads. By this time, though, having learned from the Mandan boys that cleats were helpful, they'd gotten a local shoemaker to retrofit their shoes with cleats. They beat Cullum, too, 60 to nothing. It only cost about $3 to get the team kitted out with cleats, which means, in those days, you could field a football team for the price of 150 gopher tails. Dakota Date Book is coming up. Now you can take Prairie Public with you wherever you go. Download Prairie Public's free radio app to listen on your iPhone, iPad, or Droid. This is Dakota Date Book for February 26th. Sometimes here in North Dakota, we feel removed from problems that go on in the rest of the country. However, on this date in 1959, one man reminded some North Dakotans that they should expect the unexpected and also that they should meet the unexpected head-on. Victor Reisel was an unusual, famous columnist from New York who was scheduled to give some talks in Bismarck and Fargo. He was known for promoting trade labor unions and also for the 118-some articles he had written, as well as the time he had spent on the radio and on TV, blasting the underworld menace of gangsters. This had not gone over well with the Mafia, so a few years before, they sent someone after Reisel and blinded him. He said, The attack was intended to frighten not only myself, but the press of the country, which it hasn't. He remained upbeat. Perhaps he couldn't see, but he continued to write and to speak out. However, the experience did change his lifestyle. He had more help in areas he didn't need help in before. For instance, when Reisel arrived in North Dakota, he was accompanied by his wife. Although he said he kept feeling the swish of arrows in the air, and although he certainly didn't need the cold or the snow described to him, Mrs. Reisel described the surroundings of the streets of Bismarck as they walked along. Reisel was also accompanied by an ever-present New York cop named John O'Leary, his bodyguard, 
who was an exception to the rule that Brooklynites are noisy and have difficulty with the mother tongue. Riesel didn't need his bodyguard here. In fact, the mafia hadn't attacked him for a while, and they didn't attack him when he was in North Dakota. However, as he reminded North Dakotans, gangsters were everywhere. He said the old Al Capone syndicate of Chicago was extending to this area and that there had also been some activity through those gangsters operating in Minneapolis. No community is immune to this sort of thing, he said. While in Bismarck, he spoke to capacity audiences at the Bismarck Auditorium and also spoke to a joint session of the North Dakota Legislature. Well-equipped with wit and wisdom, the blind columnist served as an inspiration. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Sarah Walker. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. Wednesday on Hear It Now, rangeland reclamation is a topic of growing interest as the number of pipelines in the region increases. Aaron Espeland of the Northern Plains Agricultural Research Laboratory in Sydney, Montana, will join us Wednesday. She's a plant ecologist who will be speaking at an upcoming workshop on the topic. Also joining us, Wayne Berry, an area rancher. And it's that time of year when parents and college-bound students are planning for the start of freshman year. We'll hear about the North Dakota Dollars for Scholars and College Save from the Bank of North Dakota tomorrow. In the meantime, have a great evening.